Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. We've had a wonderful evening yesterday. Thank you for, I see a few familiar faces from last night. So it was great to see you yesterday. And so we meet again. For those of you who are here, you actually came back. Okay. Well, very briefly, I mean, you've heard a little bit about me, but then there's someone here, I'm sure, who's thinking, what has this old 72-year-old subcontinental in a sari got to tell us about sex of all things? So let me tell you a little bit, just a quickie version about who I am. I was born in Sri Lanka, in the tea plantations of Sri Lanka. And I went to a Methodist missionary school. I was converted. My grandparents were Christian. My grandfather's name was Rasa Yamutvelo Ratnam. You'll all repeat that to me after the service. And he was con they were converted by a Welsh missionary who decided that was far too pagan. So I was called, uh, my grandfather's name was changed to Roberts. So I grew up as Patricia Roberts, which was about as Welsh as it got in Sri Lanka in the 1950s. 50s. Anyway, I went to medical school and after studying medicine, I was teaching at the medical school there. And then I did my postgraduate study in Hawaii. That's where I actually got into sex. I must have known something because my son was already three years old. But <laughs> my professor was a sexologist. For those of you who are wondering what a sexologist is, sexologist study about sex, read about sex, research sex, talk about sex, teach about sex, do a little bit of sex therapy. <laughs> My son says that's why he's an only child, because I was too busy doing everything else. And <clears throat> anyway, so then I went back to Sri Lanka, and for six years I was the only sex therapist in the country. It was very busy with 20 million population. And 30 years ago, my son and I, my husband and I, and my then 13-year-old son moved to Australia. We, my husband and I belong to the two ethnic groups in Sri Lanka, so it's the story behind that. Anyway, we moved here, and then from that time, I've been teaching at the University of Sydney, and as Pastor Adam said, was director of the graduate program in sexual health. Retired seven years ago at the age of 65, and at the age of 72, we're still wandering around talking about sex. But on the other hand, which of you ladies don't want to think that in, at 72, you'd like to be wandering around talking about sex, right? So that's a career change if anyone's looking for it. So what are we going to talk about today? So you've been singing and you've been praising God and you've been say, singing things like I just took down a couple of notes. God, you are good enough for me. You're just saying that. And you're saying nothing can compare with, your, with my hope, the living hope that you provide me. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this now is going to be our challenge. For the next 35, 36 minutes or so, I want to take you to truly looking at what does this look like in our world today, in a confused world where sexuality is presented as some kind of, you know, enjoyment for fun rather than God's good gift. What does it mean? Where are we looking for our satisfaction? 
when it comes to sexuality? Where are we looking? You know, even in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, we read, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, God, Yahweh, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, cisterns that are broken and cannot hold water. Jesus himself declared in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And Pastor Adam spoke about that. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, where are we as a culture looking for our thirst and our hunger? I put it to you that when we move our eyes anywhere, other than on Jesus and that living hope. We might as well be looking in the toilet cisterns for our thirst and in the trash bins for a crumb of bread. Of course, it might give you a momentary happiness. Orgasms, if you're really lucky, might last 30 seconds to a minute. But they will not last. So quick and easy fixes of this world will never bring you happiness. As sexologists and as a Christian, we talk about sexuality as desire, love, and what happens when you are sexually intimate. So let me just quickly take you through what does it mean to be a sexual being and what is the culture, what's the science, what's the culture, and what has the word of God got to say about it? And then I just want to pull it back and say what does that mean practically for us to live? Sexual desire. What does desire mean? Desire is a wanting for something. It kicks in your brain when you reach puberty, adolescence, and by the time you're your age, testosterone's bubbling in your brain, men and women. Men have about 20 times more. That explains some things. But anyway, it bubbles around and says, I want sex. It's a wanting. Some of you may be like, finish this service. I really want it. And others are like... You know, if I trip over it on my way out, I might notice it. That's okay. There's a variation. But the reality is a wanting. Now, in our culture today, the rhetoric we hear is that sexual desire is not a want. It is a need and a right. So what you desire, you must get. It is your right to have whatever you desire, especially when it comes to sex. So if you desire porn or same sex or premarital sex or extramarital sex or group sex or animal sex or whatever you desire, it is your right and nobody can question it. This is what drives our world today. In an individualistic world we live in, we live in what we call a post-truth culture, a culture that says there is no objective truth, and we as people of God come from the point that we know the truth, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the world says there is no truth, your desires drive you. It is a feeling, it is a powerful feeling. What about falling in love? Ah, falling in love. There are some of you who sort of right now are thinking, you're so in love. Those of you who are married, I mean, I almost see you looking at each other and maybe even reaching for your spouse's hand, but um, somebody's hand. Anyway, the point is, 
that, you know, you remember that time when you first fell in love. You know, you were seated in church. There was a message, I don't know, on Lamentations or Ezekiel or something. And you looked around and there she was. And you had that heart palpitating, pupil dilating moment when you wanted her by your side, in your arms, in your bed as soon as possible. I don't want to disappoint you, but it was just a chemical called dopamine that gets sprayed all over your brain and basically makes you dopey. Falling in love is the dopiest thing you will ever do in your life. Other chemical changes take place, same as obsessive compulsive behavior. Love is an obsession. Same changes take place if you t take a little cocaine hit. Love is an, ob is an addiction. And my favorite is that it suppresses during that time, the parts of rational thinking are suppressed. <laughs> Remember looking and, and thinking, what does she see in him? She ain't seeing. Love is blind. It is a powerful emotion. This is just chemistry. The chemistry of desire says it is a feeling. The chemistry of falling in love, we actually call it under the influence. So if you are one of these people who's like not yet married but acting under the influence, just beware because you are acting under the influence right now. It's really a good thing because it lasts for about 18 or 24 months, the craziness, just long enough to get you up and married. Don't you love a God who does that? But anyway, it's a powerful emotion. We need to be aware of that. We are people of God and the self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. We do not live by our desires. The word of God is clear. In Jeremiah 17, it says, who can know the heart? The heart is deceptive. Even Jesus said, you know, he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts and adultery and lust. Our hearts are deceptive things. As Christians, when the world says, follow your heart, we say we follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. That is a counter-cultural message. And we dare not turn our eyes away from that. We need to be so aware how different we really are from the world's message. And just call that on to that. See, the, the Bible is not a sex-negative book. Today, the message we get is, what has God got to say about sex? Isn't God some kind of a cosmic killjoy whose only words are just don't do it? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Go back and read your Bible. It's book ended with a marriage. In Genesis, we read of Adam and Eve. God makes Adam and then he brings all the animals to Adam and Adam names them and then look, not really suitable. The dog maybe, but no. So I need to make a suitable helper to be with him. So God puts Adam to sleep, then he does some minor surgery and he creates Eve and Adam, you know, that was the first blind date because Adam opens his eyes and there she is. And he's like, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. It helped. He'd never seen another one. But, you know, at that moment, we see desire in the Garden of Eden. And we see God saying, and they were naked and felt no shame. Nakedness is an ultimate vulnerability. 
you know, you are all nice and tight and taut and everything's in the right place. You just wait till you're 72 and things have been gravity challenged and kind of moved to Invercargill or something. And then you will know what it is to be naked before someone. When you are naked, you are vulnerable. And the no shame means you are naked in a place where you have total trust in that person. In today's world, we are told if you love someone and you desire them, then you must have sex with them. And it's a casual thing. Sex is never casual. God's gave right from Adam and Eve that man and woman will be naked and feel no shame because they trust the person they are with, Adam and Eve and every marriage since then. Total vulnerability in total trust. And the only place where you can have total trust is when that person has promised to protect you and be with you till death part you. And that is called marriage. And that is why the marriage is the place. This is Genesis in Matthew 19. Jesus repeats that when he says, when they ask him about divorce, and he points back and he says, have you not heard that in the beginning they were created male and female? And so he goes right back to Genesis through the Bible. I said it's bookended, Revelation, Revelation 19, it talks of Christ coming back to claim his bride. What a marriage, what a consummation that's going to be. Then there's a sealed section of the Bible, the middle, eight chapters of erotic lovemaking between husband and wife, Song of Songs. And in the chapter 8 it says, love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as a grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. The Bible clearly tells us that sex, desire, and falling in love are powerful emotions. It also comes with a caveat. Three times in Song of Songs it says, don't arouse this before the correct time. Fire is powerful. Fire in the heart, in the uh, fireplace is good. Fire out in the bush, especially in dry countries like Australia, is a bushfire. And we need to be aware of that. Desire is good. Falling in love is good. In the place God gives it, there is a place and a purpose and a plan for everything in our life. And God's place and purpose and plan for good sex is in one man, one woman marriage. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no shortcut to this. There is no excuses to it. It is God's good plan. Having said that, Praise God, we worship a God who forgives. And there may be people here who have come to Christ after you were had sex and you sort of may be feeling, oh, does that mean God hates me? No, because God is a God of forgiveness and repentance and a God of healing. And we need to remember that too. Even if like you're married and they, maybe there's an extramarital affair, there is forgiveness, but there needs to be repentance and we need to remember that too, that that good plan, we are in a fallen world, but the good plan still stands. Now, 
What about the, the last point? We talked about desire and falling in love. Sexual intimacy of any type is a binding act. When you are sexually intimate with someone, you don't even have to have intercourse. Any form of intimacy binds you at a brain level. Different chemicals, oxytocin, vasopressin, the same ones that bind a mother and a baby when the baby suckles at the breast. When you have intimacy, the levels go up. When you have an orgasm, they go sky high. And they bind you. So, there is nothing casual about sex. Sex is never casual. There is nothing casual. So, in our culture, when we talk of young people and older people of whatever age saying, I, you know, I can have sex, it doesn't mean anything. That is wrong. It can never, never be nothing because God creates it as a binding activity. And that is the good message of God. The world will look at sex and say it is to be treated like some kind of a commodity to be used cheap. God says, I give it to you as a good gift. And just like any good gift, it comes with a way to be best used. Satan can never create, never create anything. Satan can only corrupt God's good creation. And that is what has happened to sex. In a good creation where God created Adam and Eve and through the Bible said one man, one woman together in marriage is a place for sex. Satan, just as he talked to Eve, approaches every one of us in the world today and said, surely God didn't mean for you not to have fun. Surely God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? He wants you to have some sex outside marriage or your wife isn't being good to you, your husband isn't giving you enough sex. So maybe this person outside is going to be the one who's going to make you happy. Satan says the same thing now as he said to Eve. Did God really say that? We need to be so aware. My dear brothers and sisters, as I've said at the beginning, you might find temporary happiness out of God's plan. But God doesn't want your temporary happiness. The ultimate goal of God's plan for your life is your eternal holiness. Always keep your eye on that. The trash bins and the toilet cisterns may give you a little bit of happiness, but they will destroy your eternal holiness. Look for that eternal holiness. Keep your eyes on that. What does that mean to marriage? Let's talk a little bit about marriage and what it means for marriage. What is marriage? We already talked about it. You know, with one man, one woman in that one flesh relationship, bound together at brain and at some deep level. You know, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, 
your marriages, and I'm talking to marrieds now, and maybe engaged, and maybe planning to get married, or maybe thinking of getting married. Marriages, Christian marriages, show the world the shape of the gospel. What does this mean? Remember what I said? That, you know, when you fall in love, you are like dopey and under the influence. Your beloved is the most wonderful person in your life. Anyone tells you, maybe that kind of multiple peers tattooed guy isn't right for you. You go, no, I love him. Because that's all you see. That's the brain way that God's made it. Now, after about 18, 24 months, so you're married, then what happens? I'm sure somebody thought that. You said you lasted, then what? You see, now that's when, when you're having lots of sex and you're getting bound together. So no longer palpitating. I mean, those of us who are married for some time, they're kind of glad about that. Because I'm married 45 years and I'm really glad that I don't palpitate every time the old man passes. Because I'll be increasing my high blood pressure medication every other day if that happened. So the reality is that, you know, when the day you get married, your husband, and I'll speak from the point of view of the wife, your husband is like a prince. It's like he's coming on a white horse and, you know, taking you off your feet. Ten years later, you get up and you look at the pillow next to you. <laughs> and there it is with, like, morning hair already thinning and, you know, morning breath and a little bit of drool. <laughs> And you think, hmm, prince or frog? <laughs> and that is when true love of marriage means you got to kiss the frog. <laughs> because once the palpitations pass, true love is an action. So you may be palpitating, but once you are married, Loving, falling in love is a feeling. True love that keeps a couple together is the daily actions of other focused, sacrificial compromise that keeps you together. It is an action of loving. And actions of loving can bring back the loving feelings. And that's a lot of research in that. You put people who are long married, for instance, if you put Pastor Anita and Pastor Adam into a magnetic resonance imaging machine and scan their brains, then they look very much in love. So they're going to still, those bits, the dopey bits are going to light up. Not like a fireworks... Not like, you know, the fireworks over whatever you do on, East, on the 1st of January. I was going to say fireworks over the Harbour Bridge, but then that's not relevant here in Paraumu, but we'll let that go. So it, it may not be that. It may be more like a little fizzle in the backyard barbecue. <laughs> but the reality is that it does happen. It doesn't mean that you can't get that dopamine surges. But it's just that what keeps you together is that daily sacrificial other focus. It works in everyday life as well as in the bedroom. That caring for the other more than yourself. 
And the whole Bible speaks to that. Because what does it say? Your marriage, I said, is the shape of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 5, it clearly tells you when Apostle Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Your marriage is like Christ and the church. We've got to show that to a fallen world who have no idea what a true marriage is like. Your marriage, every married couple here, the sacrifice you make and the love that you show to each other will show the world what Christ really is, the gospel. That is what you do. Marriage unites you. It's for making babies. It's for having fun. Your bodies are complementary. And of course, to show the world what it means to be Christian. Let me talk to you singles for a few minutes. What does it mean then for singleness? What is it in singleness? In our world today, singles have a far harder time than marrieds. See, if I was to say, okay, marrieds in that side and all over here we want to have the singles, you know, marrieds is kind of easy. You hold your spouse's hand and you trundle off and you sit there. But the singles are going, hmm, singles? What is a single? I mean, you could be 15 and unmarried and you're a single. Or you are 95 and you're widowed or you're, you know, maybe separated. Or maybe you never got married. So singleness is a very a category of all ages and all stages of life. Now, in our world today... Singles have a very difficult time as Christians. You know why that is? Because you singles will know why. Because the world says, what's your problem? Just get out there, have the sex you want, live an independent life, and have fun. Because that is what is going to make you happy, isn't it? Just find a boyfriend or find a girlfriend, just have the sex you want, and have fun. Is that God's way? That's the challenge to every single, to think about, is it momentary happiness or eternal holiness that I'm looking to? I can find that momentary happiness by having a casual sexual encounter. Don't know what you call it here, whether it's a booty call or a casual sex or whatever, or a one night stand or making whoopee or whatever, but whatever it is, that is temporary. It is not going to bring you permanent happiness. God's way is no different to what we talked about when we talked at the beginning. It's the one man, one woman in marriage. And there may be singles here thinking, how can I do that? How can I be happy if I don't have sex? That is a worldview. For us as Christians to even ask that, can I be complete if I never have sex? Can I be fulfilled if I never have sex? Wrong question. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we say that I cannot be complete or satisfied or fulfilled without sex, Jesus Christ must be sitting at the right hand of God going, poor me, I never had sex. We worship a celibate savior. How dare we say that we cannot be content unless we have sex? 
How dare we? We are saying that the Apostle Paul and above all the Lord Jesus Christ were incomplete. The Son of God who came fully human and died for us. And we dare to say that we can't live without sex. I have been a doctor for 50 years and a sexologist for over 40. I've seen people die due to lack of water and healthcare and exposure and lack of medicines. There is not one empirically reported case of death by lack of sex. Not one. People die by having sex and catching something. Nobody ever died of not having sex. Trust me, I'm a sexologist. You see, we need to be aware of this because the world says joy is in being sexually satisfied. My son is 43 years old. He, he's decided to stay single and serve the Lord. And when he speaks, he talks of himself as a sexually satisfied virgin. And he doesn't mind by saying this because he says you can be satisfied. You can be happy. You can be content. And that is the contentment we look for. You see, my dear singles, that satisfaction in Jesus rather than in the world's temporary happiness. Even while you may be seeking for partner, seeking to get married, and maybe even grieving the good thing of marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. If you are grieving the lack of a partner, it is okay. That is the tension of being a Christian. That sometimes we grieve a good thing and we moan a good thing, but still are able to find our satisfaction in Jesus. When you as a single... Show that you don't have to live as the world and can be satisfied in Jesus. You are showing the world the sufficiency of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful demonstration to the world? That is the beauty of being a Christian single. So every single in this room, we as a church honor you because it is not easy being a Christian single in the world today. You know, in, uh, in John 15, it says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. I've told you that this is so, that my joy may be in you, Jesus says, and that your joy may be complete. You saying, Holy Spirit, come here, take over my life. You are a Christian. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Your body belongs. Your body is the home of the Holy Spirit. You are glorifying God in your body. And you have that joy. Claim that joy. The world can never give you that joy. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can give you that joy. So if you're married... Your life, married life, in all its ups and downs, will show the world the shape of the gospel. See, marriages matter to God. Marriage is a good thing. Our individual marriages <laughs> are all over the place because we are in a fallen world. But marriage itself is precious in God's sight. 
So hold on to that. Know that in the sacrifices and the compromises and the overarching other focus loving, you are showing the world the shape of the gospel. And singles in the struggles of living God's way of integrity and purity, know that the world will look at you and know that Looking at you will point them to the sufficiency of the gospel. So let's pull this together. What then does this mean to us? Where to from here? What is our challenge here? In Luke chapter 9 verse 26 we read, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this is my prayer and my challenge to you. You know, are you willing to stand up and be unashamed for the gospel? Unashamed not just to call yourself Christians, but unashamed to live the word of God. That is your calling. Is, does it matter more for you to have the accolades of this adulterous world that we live in? Or does it matter more for you to have the accolades of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes with the holy angels? That is our choice today in the world we live in. Where are we going to turn? We clearly heard that when Jesus talked in Luke chapter 9, just a few verses later, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of God. You have your hand on the plow today. Are you going to keep it on the plow? Are you willing to make those sacrifices that may be necessary? No, I will correct that. Probably will be necessary in the world as it is today. Are you willing to be that witness for the Lord Jesus Christ who may be persecuted for taking a stand? Then, when Jesus comes with his holy angels, he will look at you and say, Come, my child. Come and inherit all that I have ready for you. I pray that that will be you. God bless you.